In the Bible, it is called Revelation, and we're going to be looking at a passage in just a few moments in chapter 3. Uh, as there are times where uh, you just know that there's something that's got to be said, uh, it, we all come to those places in our lives where we just know that there is a, a word uh, that is fit for the moment, a word of encouragement, a word of spurring us on, uh, as, as it says in the Bible, even provoking us to love and good deeds. And so this morning, after some prayer and uh, a lot of bit, a, a bit of wrestling with the text, I, I want to bring to you a message uh, that is simply entitled, The Joy of Revival. Uh, but to get to the joy of revival, there is uh, circumstances that we as individuals have got to move through. Uh, we have to be willing to answer the question, do I live with God as the king over everything, including me? Uh, there is a, a lot within us that we will mentally get to that point where we say, oh, of course, I mean, he's God. You know, by definition, God being God means he's in charge of everything. And so we treat it in a very generalized kind of category. Yes, God is in charge of everything. But the question is, are we willing to personalize that the answer to that question to say, no, 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 it's not just that God is generally in charge of everything, but that I trust and believe that God is also the king over my own life. Uh, there's a, a philosopher by the name of Abraham Kuyper who, who said this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of all human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Everything in all of human existence, every square inch, everything that exists, every person that exists, Christ declares that it's all His. He owns it. He is sovereign Lord over all of it. And if we are going to experience what many Christians pray for, long for, hope for in terms of revival, not something that just happens out there in the streets, the highways, the byways, not just something that happens over in third world countries, not something that happens over to those people, but revival that happens within our own hearts. We have to come into this idea that Christ has declared over the domain of me that he has said, mine that you are under my rule, you're under my lordship as well. In the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, in the first chapter, Jesus reveals himself in this apocalyptic kind of, of moment in John's life. Uh, he's the writer of the book. And then in chapters 2 and 3, Jesus himself authors seven letters to seven different churches of the ancient world there in the Roman Empire. And to some of the churches, he commends them and he tells them uh, what an incredible faithfulness he has seen in their life. And to others, he alerts them and he sounds the alarm about what they cannot see about themselves. And here is where I want us to point our attention. 
It is perhaps the most well-known of all of the seven letters. It is the one that I have found to be the most oft-quoted, and so I would read it for you this morning here in Revelation chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. It is the letter to a church in the city of Laodicea. Jesus says to John, write to the angel, and when he says angel, he means messenger. We can uh, translate that and understand and interpret it as the leader of that church, the elder or the pastor of that church. Write to the angel of the church in Laodicea, thus says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I am going to vomit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I become wealthy and need nothing, and you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you may be rich, white clothes so that you may be dressed and your shameful nakedness not be exposed, and ointment to spread on your eyes so that you may see. As many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be zealous and repent. See, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. Let anyone who has ears to hear listen to what the Spirit says to the churches." There are really just two characters here in this passage. The first is the self-deceived church there in Laodicea. What we see there in verses 15 through 17 is that Jesus is having to alert these believers that they're not who they think they are. Now, it helps us to understand exactly what was the context of the city of Laodicea. At one time, before the Roman Empire swept in, Laodicea was just on the back end of everything. They were not a well-known city. They didn't have any wealth. They didn't have any prestige. They didn't have any positive reputation. They were just one more city on the landscape of this land. But then, with the Roman Empire building all of the road systems that they did, Laodicea became a very important place. It became a capital city, as it were. It became a judicial center in that region. And there was a great deal of wealth in the city of Laodicea. They had uh, refined all the processes by making wool that would be made into very costly garments. They had worked through the process of understanding how to make uh, darker dyes, which were more expensive in the Roman Empire. And there was a medical industry that had boomed there in the city of Laodicea, and some doctors of the ancient world had invented an eye ointment that was a cure-all for many problems with people's eyesight. But also, it was a place of great religious pluralism. There were all sorts of different gods that were worshipped in Laodicea, everything from some pagan tribe gods uh, that supposedly had something to do with creation, all the way to the Greek mythology that maybe you're remembering back from your high school days of Zeus. There was a large uh, idol there to, the, to the, the head of the chief god of the pantheon of the Greeks, Zeus. 
And so Laodicea was a place of wealth, of power, political you know, influence, judicial influence. They were a place of great economy. And the reality is that they had to face that Jesus is trying to introduce to them is that they had everything they wanted but did not desire who they actually needed. They had everything they wanted, but they didn't desire the one that they actually needed. They had decided that Zeus was enough. They had decided that wealth was enough. They had decided that their costly garments were enough. They had decided that their burgeoning medical industry was enough. Reputation and influence and power was enough. And he said, but your sin among you makes you lukewarm. It's not hot. It's not cold. You don't have what you actually need. You're you're not turned off by the sense of Christianity and of the gospel, but you're definitely not passionate for it because you have all of these other things that are distracting you. And we all know that basically lukewarm water is not good for anything. It's not refreshing when you're hot and you've been working in the yard and you need something to drink to quench your thirst. You don't want lukewarm water. And it's no good if you need to go take a shower that you're ready to get really cleaned off and all you have is that kind of tepid kind of feeling. So Jesus introduces himself in this letter as the Amen. He says, thus the Amen says, the one who is the faithful and the true witness, the originator of God's creation. When Jesus introduces himself as the Amen, he is saying, and that's the end of the story. Uh, This is the period on the sentence. You don't need anything else. You don't need Jesus plus your wool industry. You don't need Jesus plus your medical prowess. You don't need Jesus plus your, your judicial influence in the region. You don't need Jesus plus anything, because Jesus plus anything equals nothing, whereas Jesus plus nothing equals everything. This is what you need is Jesus. He is enough. But this is a self-deceived church who says, we're wealthy, we're well-off, and we don't need anything. We've got everything that we need. We are fine on our own. If we will just protect what it is that we've got, if we'll just build a fortress around who we are, we'll be fine. But Jesus says the reality is that you are wretched, morally you are bankrupt. You are pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. He goes right to the heart of all the things that they think they have, a great industry of medicine and clothing and garments and political power, and he says, but what you really have is nothing. You you have all this money, but spiritually you're bankrupt. You have all these beautiful clothes, but spiritually you're naked and your shame is showing. You think that you've got the medical industry cornered so that you can solve everybody's eye problems, but spiritually you're blind. And when we hold on to sin, so are we. We are 
people of a buckled character. We are people who are sinful, born into it, and choosing it. And only by the radical, transforming work of Christ does anything change in our lives. And as Christ writes to this first century church, this is a message that applies to us in the 21st century as the church as well. That when we get satisfied with the stuff of earth and the things that we own and the situations of our life and we grow lukewarm to the things of Christ then our sin it may be blatant to God, but it, it, we are blinded to it ourselves. And then we become the ones that, just like the Laodiceans, are lukewarm and worthy only of God's vomitous activity because we have chosen poorly. Dallas Willard, one of the great writers of the 20th century about spiritual formation, said this, about the poor gospel that we have chosen. The gospel of sin management produces vampire Christians who want Jesus for His blood and little else. This false idea of what the gospel is, I just want enough of Jesus' blood sprinkled on my life so I don't go to hell. I just want the gospel just to manage the sin in my life, just to change my behavior just enough so that I can be nice. And he says, this gospel of sin management just makes you a vampire against Christ, that all you want is just enough of his blood to get you out of hell and into heaven, but it doesn't do its full effect in your life. So what is it that we have to deal with in our lives? I mean, with We don't even need a big crowd. It can just be me in the room by myself, and I need to preach this message. It it can just be me and you in this room, and we need to hear this message. But we are a people who have sin rampant in our lives, and we would be foolish and naive and blind. We would be the lukewarm Laodiceans to think there's not sin in our lives, that demands confession. We have anger. There is angry spirits in our, in our midst, wherever we go. We get angry about this person, that person, this circumstance, that other circumstance. There's pride, the, the ego and the arrogance that says, I will never back down. There is, at times, deceit and lying. There are people that have built their entire lives on deceit, on deception, that you lied on your job application decades ago, and you've had to keep up appearances all these years about it, or you lied to that friend, that, and you never wanted to go back on it. You never wanted the embarrassment of it. There's sexual sin and lust and acting upon it, that people give in in the midst of the night, when nobody else is looking, uh, those sins that creep in of lust and pornography and immorality in our lives, where you have slept with someone that's not your spouse, where you have tried to bait somebody into a relationship that they should not have been, where you have teased and tantalized others, or you've given in to those temptations. In our culture and in our community and among us, there might even be racism, that says, I just don't like people of a different ethnicity. 
I don't want them around. I don't want to be friends with them. I don't want them influencing me and mine. I, I don't want them making decisions for me. I don't think they're as good decision makers as I am, and so I would rather them sit in the back of the room and be quiet. There's selfishness that says, I've got to be first. I've got to be noticed. I need to be the one that everybody takes care of. There is backbiting and divisiveness that says, you know what, I don't like that person, so I'm going to subtweet them, I'm going to passively, aggressively post about them, I'm going to, I'm going to offer a prayer request on their behalf, which is just an opportunity to gossip about somebody else's pain. There might be drunkenness and gluttony, where it's, I'm going to drown my sorrows, I'm going to eat for my comfort, I'm going to seek peace in the, in the stuff of earth rather than actually going to the God of heaven who created me. Instead, I'm going to drink more than I should, and I'm going to eat a whole lot more than I ought to because I deserve the comfort that comes by it. Maybe there's bitterness. You got mad at somebody a long time ago, it was way past time to let it go, but you have held on to it, and every time you see them, it just brings a seething anger into your life. Every time you see them, all you can think about is that one thing that they did all of that time ago, and you have just festered in bitterness about a circumstance or a person. Or maybe it is just absolute spiritual laziness, that you just don't even care or think about the billions of lost people in the world, the millions of lost people in our country are granted about the 250,000 lost people in our county, or maybe even the lost people that are your next-door neighbors. And you are just meh about the whole thing hoping that God will do something with somebody else in that whole circumstance. And our sin is sickening to God. And the holy God of heaven refuses to tolerate our sin. And so I ask myself the question, when I'm in my study and praying and trying to think about this, if the God of heaven refuses to tolerate our sin... Why do I? Why do we? Why do we tolerate the sin in our lives when we know that our king does not? Well, I can make guesses. I can make stabs at it. it, it for the most part, it's because we don't take sin seriously. We think that it's something to be toyed around with, we think too high of ourselves that we can deal with it on our own. We are like the Laodiceans who have convinced ourselves, no, I'm just fine. I've got all this good stuff going on in my life. I can piddle around and play with sin, and it won't, it won't hurt me. But I want to remind you, I want you to hear this clearly. Sin is not a pet to tame. It is a beast to slay. And it wants to kill you. Sin wants to destroy you. And so it's not a pet to keep on a leash like it's your little chihuahua. It is not that cute little furry creature that lives in your house. 
It is a beast that you must slay, that you must kill. And hiding our sin only gives it power over us. Whereas if you will cast it under the light of Christ, then it will, he will bring forgiveness and healing to us. He will once again empower us because he will not tolerate our sin, but he will fill us with his grace and his mercy and his love and his courage and his empowerment if we will bring our sin under the light of Christ. Laodicea was this self-deceived church, but what we see in the rest of this passage is the pursuing Savior. Jesus says to this church there in verse 18, I advise you to buy from me. This advice that Jesus gives in its original language is not a demand. He is not going to bully his way into your life. It is an invitation. The advice that Jesus gives at this moment is an influential invitation. It is an opportunity that is laid before the Laodicean church 2,000 years ago and is laid before us as our church and as, as individual people. I advise you. And he, and he says, what you need are not the riches that you've got in Laodicea. And he says to us, what you need is not the riches that you have in Bradenton. Don't be impressed by your, by your building. Don't be impressed by your reputation. Don't be impressed by your history. Don't be impressed by who people think you are or who you think people think you are. Don't be impressed by your influence. Here's what you need. You need the riches of Christ. He says you need the gold that has been refined through the fire. Gold in, in the Scripture is oftentimes, and here specifically, a representation of the righteousness of Christ. It has been refined through the fire. It has come to us refined. He says, what you need is my righteousness. You don't need your moral standards. You need the righteousness of Christ. He says, you need the white clothes that will hide shame and nakedness. The, in the New Testament, it speaks in a couple of different places about how we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, how he covers us. And this is true from the very beginning of the Bible with Adam and Eve when they sinned in the Garden of Eden. It is God who then clothed them. He had to slay animals. Blood had to be shed in order for their sin to be covered. Christ sheds his blood so that we can have our, our nakedness and our shame covered by what he does. And he says to us as believers, you have exposed yourself to sin again. It is time to allow the, the white raiment of Christ's goodness to clothe you again. He says you need ointment for your eyes, but not like what your doctors produce. Because you've become blind. Your sight is blurry. You think you see things clearly and for what they are, but you're not seeing clearly. You're looking at things cattywampus, as we would say in Alabama. You're looking at things sideways. You, you don't see clearly. You have deceived yourself into thinking that you understand how things ought to be spiritually, but you've become lukewarm, and you need to be able to see clearly again. We even need this discipline. Jesus says, as many, here in verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. If you feel the rebuke and the discipline of Christ in your life for your sin, it is not because he's angry. 
It, it is not because he's looking for a way to kick you out of his covenant. It is because he loves you. It is because he desires you. It is because the king of heaven has looked upon your life and wants to call you home even though you are a prodigal child. And so he says, so I am standing at the door and knocking. Now, this passage is used very, very often when it comes to our witnessing. We say to people that are not yet Christians, Jesus is standing at the door knocking at the door of your heart, that he wants you to let him in. And in an, in an analogy and in a metaphor, that is exactly the truth. But in the passage, in its original context, Jesus is standing at the door of the heart of Christians, saying, you have shut me out. I can't, I'm not inside with you. I'm not in close relationship with you. I don't have any communion with you. Will you let me back in? He is inviting you and advising you and calling on you to let him back in. And he says, and if you will let me in, it will be a deep and personal relationship. It will be dinner with royalty. And so when we think about what is the difference in my life between the time that I was white hot with passion about who Christ is and what he could do in my life and what he could do in other people's lives, when I think about the time in, in church life when, man, we were seeing people saved and people baptized and people serving and people going out on mission and people doing all these things, what is the difference between that time and where we find ourselves to be personally lukewarm and tepid as a congregation and not so sure whether or not we, we're going to make it or we get into a protectionist mode and we just want to kind of keep our own and we, wanna, we don't want things to be too messy and we just want things to be nice. What's the difference? Well, the difference is not Christ. Christ has not changed. The difference is not the gospel. The gospel has not lost its effect. The only thing that could be different between those two circumstances is us that we're the ones who have walked away. We're the ones who have moved away from Christ. We're the ones who have shut the door in his face. We're the ones who said, you can't have all of me any longer. We're the ones that though we may be acting nicely and we're mannerly and, and we're, we shake hands and we hug necks and we do things the way we're supposed to at work and at home and in the neighborhood and we wave to people while we're walking dogs and, 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 you know, and we're courteous, but are we willing to be white hot with passion? Which is what brings us to this joy of repentance. He says in this passage, be zealous and repent. Now, zealous is not a word that you're going to use in any sentence this week, I would suppose. Not a word that, that is in your normal kind of rotation of vocabulary. But just hear the word, and you know what it means. Zealous, uh, energized, energetic, that you're pursuing, that you are willing to go after it, that you're not going to wait on it, that you're going to run for it, that you're going to pursue it, pursue repentance. And at times people say, gosh, this whole thing that God does all through the Bible of constantly telling people to repent, it just sounds so angry. It sounds like my high school principal just waiting to give somebody a paddling every time I hear it in the Bible. God says, repent, repent, repent. But it is because of the kindness of God 
that He calls us to repent because He knows the destructive nature of sin and the restoring power of the gospel. This is why He calls us to repent, not because He's looking for a reason to lash you against a post and whip you, but it's out of His kindness that he wants, to, he wants to dine with you. He wants to be known by you. And your sin, this beast in your life that has drug you away from him, the anger, the bitterness, the racism, the, the misogyny, the drunkenness, the gluttony, the, the sexual immorality, uh, all of the anger and the pride and the deception that's in your life, takes you away from the kindness of God that calls us to repentance. The laziness and the apathy toward His mission takes us away from the kindness of God. In the 32nd Psalm, it says, "'How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered.'" How joyful is a person whom the Lord does not charge with iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. The psalmist then says, when I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in summer's heat. And then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin." Therefore, let everyone who is faithful pray to you immediately. When great floodwaters come, they will reach him. You are, you are, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You protect me from trouble. You surround me with joyful shouts of deliverance. And then, I think this is the Lord replying, I will instruct you and show you the way to go. With my eye on you, I will give counsel do not be like a horse or mule without understanding that must be controlled with bit and bridle, or else it will not come near to you. Many pains come to the wicked, but the one who trusts the Lord will have faithful love surrounding him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones. Shout for joy, all you upright in heart. God's desire is to bring you the joy of His salvation. And so, it is this moment that you must decide what you will do with your sin. And we have a lot of sin. And we have more sin than we can bear. But God has more mercy than we can imagine. The question is, are we willing to admit the amount of sin that is bearing upon our souls so that we can experience the richness and the riches of God's mercy that are unimaginable to our minds. Now, let me tell you what repentance is not. Repentance is not just confessing lesser sins and not getting to the root issues. Repentance is not just generalizations saying, God, I know I've been bad, and so now I want to be good. Confession and repentance is not just trying to relieve the feelings of guilt in your life so that I can feel better today and, and worry about stuff later. Repentance is not just about behavior modification in your life. 
And it's certainly not verbally confessing something without changing your love for Christ to be more deep. Instead, I want to encourage you that you will specifically confess your sin to God. Specifically. That if you have sinned sexually, that you confess that to Christ. If you have watched pornography, or if you have had an affair, or if you have tried to get another person to be in a relationship with you that is immoral, you should confess that to God. If you are angry, you should confess it. If there is drunkenness or gluttony or addiction in your life, confess it. If there is bitterness and resentment in your life, you need to specifically confess it to the Lord as to what it is that you are bitter about. If you have gossiped and been a backbiter and been divisive among a group of people, confess it. If you are a racist and don't like people of other ethnicities, confess it and repent before God. Specifically, confess your sin. If you have been lazy and apathetic spiritually, confess it. Say it before God. You will not surprise Him. He is well aware of all of our sin. The the question is, are we well aware of all of our sin? Then you need to return to your first love. You need to decide right now that love for Christ is more important than love for anything. That love for Christ is more important than love of money, love of the pleasure that you enjoy, love of the anger that you get to hold against another person because you got one up on them, that love for Christ is more important than protecting anything that you think is yours, that you need to prioritize love for Christ. You need to commit, thirdly, to holy obedience. I will be obedient to every word that God speaks in His Word. I will be obedient to God's call in my life. I'm going to confess specifically. I'm going to return to my first love. I'm going to commit to a holy obedience. And then you have got to act. You have got to act immediately, not next week, not next month, not when you get around to it, but you must act immediately upon the mission of God. And the mission of God includes you. The mission of God calls you to repentance. The mission of God calls you to call other people to repentance. The mission of God includes you acting in the lives of other people to show them the gospel and to tell them the gospel and to call them to the gospel. Not waiting for the professionals on the stage to do it. Not waiting for your life group, Sunday school, Bible study leader to do it. Not waiting for somebody else on the row to do it. Not waiting for another neighbor to do it but that you're going to confess your sin, you're going to return to your first love, you're going to commit to obedience, and you're going to act immediately. And this morning, I want to ask you to act immediately. In just a moment, we're going to have some music play. I'm going to offer a prayer. And I'm going to ask you to be not the Laodiceans, spiritually blind and happy with your immaturity and your lukewarmness, but that instead that you would immediately move and make a decision, 
Now, there are some of you that maybe you finally realize all of this is so true in my life. I actually have never become a Christian. I have been really religious. I've been a great Baptist, Methodist, or whatever. I've been a really great church attendee, but I never actually gave my heart to Christ. Today might be the day that that needs to happen. And for all of us that are believers, though, today is likely the day that there's a lot of people that need to get down here on their knees confessing their sins before God and crying out for His mercy, opening that door back up. But today is not the day for you just to stand still in your seat. That's not today. Today is the day that you move and you act and you say, I'm coming before Christ with my heart and with my repentance. Let's pray together. Father.